Matthew 5:21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Welcome to Reality Church London. For those that I haven't met, my name is Bijan, pastor of the church, and I'm saying every week because we need to remember it, that as a church, we are one community gathered together in two places. So there are some of us who are here in person at Central Foundation, others gathering via Zoom, but we're one church in this city and really excited to be in this journey going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so you just heard Yolanda read, but let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we look at this passage of scripture. Please pray with me. Our God, thank you for the words of Jesus, which now stand before us. And we pray that as we look at them together, you would give us not only insight, but the power of your spirit to learn, but to be changed. To be changed, not just by what we encounter in our understanding, but that our hearts might be renewed as we experience Jesus together. We ask all this for your glory and for our good as we pray together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Now we are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter five through seven. This is Jesus's most famous set of teaching. And if we could use one word to summarize everything that's in these chapters, it would be the word discipleship. Jesus is telling us what it looks like to follow him in the world today, to be his disciple. And what we learned last week is that Christian discipleship, following Jesus, is not just about behavior. It's not just about the externals of your life, but it's actually, and even more fundamentally, about the renewal of your heart. Not just external behavior, but the inner attitudes and dispositions of your heart. And so beginning today, and actually for the next three sermons, what we're gonna be doing is looking at an example that Jesus gives about the way in which discipleship is actually a matter of your heart. Not just behavior, but the heart. So today we're gonna to be talking about anger, next week, sexuality, the week after that, speech and how we use our words, and then the final week in this part of the sermon, looking at what it means to love an enemy. And what Jesus is gonna do each week is challenge us to say, think more than just about behavior, think about the attitude and disposition of your heart. Now, today, as I've mentioned, we're talking about anger. And here's what I hope out the outset to do. If I will have done these two things today, I will have succeeded in what I think God has asked me to do in bringing his word to you today. The first is to challenge you. As we wrestle with the topic of anger, 
I hope that we all see that anger is a much bigger problem than we probably realize. It's a much more serious thing that we need to pay attention to than we might otherwise have thought. So challenge us. But on the other hand, I hope to comfort you. Because as we see how challenging anger is and how real of a problem it is, this passage also presents us incredible resources for the healing of anger, ultimately, as we'll see in Jesus and in the gospel. So that's our task today, the challenge that's there in front of anger and also the comfort that God gives as we wrestle with it. And so in order to get at this topic, here's the outline for today's sermon. The first thing that I want to do is show you what is the anger that Jesus is warning against. Then second, why is it that we need to be on our guard against that kind of anger? And then third, how it can be healed. So what is the anger that Jesus is saying? Be on your guard. Second, why should we be on our guard? Why is it so dangerous? And then last, most important, how can this anger be healed? So first, what is the anger that Jesus is warning against? And here we're looking especially at verses 21 and 22. Now, if you're there in the passage or it's there on the screen, verse 21 begins with Jesus quoting the Old Testament. So let me read. He says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now stop there. Jesus is looking at his disciples. He's giving teaching. And he's saying, we all know the old command. This is actually one of the 10 commandments. You shouldn't murder. The physical destruction of another life is forbidden by God. And you could imagine as Jesus is teaching, everyone's nodding their head and saying, of course, we all know that. This is an uncontroversial truth. There's no one in Jesus's audience who would have said, actually, teacher, I disagree with that. Let me show you why murder is actually okay. This was a completely agreed upon teaching. And what would have happened is these people are nodding their heads. They'd be saying, see, we're okay. We're good. We're good people because that's what the law commands and we obey it. We live according to God's law. We're okay. But look at now what Jesus does. He's saying, we all agree about this truth. But let me take you a little deeper and show you the real meaning of the commandment. So look with me now at verse 22. Jesus, the teacher, says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Friends, here's what Jesus is saying. You agree with me, don't you, that murder is bad? Yes, we agree. Well, let me really tell you what that commandment means. If you're angry with another person, it's as if you're guilty of murder in your heart in the very eyes of God. It's as if you've taken their life in the very presence of God himself. Jesus is saying the real meaning of that commandment is deeper than the physical action of violence. It goes all the way down into the attitudes of your heart. Just to be angry, Jesus says, is as guilt-inducing as murder. Now, at this point, you say, well, hold on a second, Bijan. I mean, Jesus is saying we should never be angry. Aren't there examples in the Bible of people getting angry, of God getting angry? Yes. So we got to be clear here. 
We've got to be really clear on what Jesus is teaching. When Jesus says, don't be angry, he's talking about a specific kind of anger. We know that because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are examples of God being angry. There are examples of Jesus being angry. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul actually says, be angry, but don't sin. So he's saying, be angry, but when you're angry, don't sin. There's a way to be angry that's good or godly, and there's a way to do it that's destructive. And it's the latter, the destructive kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. And so let me see if I can summarize for you what Jesus is avoiding against. It's the kind of anger that has grown into resentment, bitterness. It's what we might call nursing a grudge, where you're actually stewing on anger in your own heart and nurturing it and cherishing it. And the reason we know that is because of what Jesus says in the rest of verse 22. He says, don't be angry. If you're angry with a brother or sister, that's murder in the eyes of God. Well, what does he mean by that? Look, he says, if you say to someone, raka. Now, what is raka? Raka is an Aramaic word. And the reason the English translators didn't bring it into English is because it's really hard to translate. The word literally means nothing. How do you translate a word that means nothingness? But the point of that word, it was meant to be an insult in Jesus's day. It was as if to say to someone, you are invisible to me. I don't see you. You are so inconsequential in my life that I'm not even going to give you the time of day. Raka was a kind of condescending dismissiveness. So Jesus says that's the form of this anger. It's to see someone is so inconsequential that you don't give them time of day. He goes on a little bit further and he says, you fool. Another example of a kind of anger bursting out. To call someone a fool in the Bible is to see them as the sum total of their bad decisions. So a fool in the Bible is someone that has been reduced in your eyes to the worst things that they've ever done. Right? So all of us do stupid things. We all make mistakes. But to view someone as a fool is to say not just you've done something stupid, but you are stupid. You are the sum total of your biggest mistakes. And Jesus is saying, when this is happening in your heart, when you look at another person and you feel a kind of grudge, a bitterness, a resentment, when you view them as nothing, as empty, as inconsequential, when you look at another person and feel like they're just stupid, not that they've done a silly thing, but they're just dumb. Jesus says, when that's happened, you've now moved into this realm of anger that's destructive. That's like murder in the eyes of God. Now see, God's anger isn't like that. When you see God being angry in the Bible, when Jesus demonstrates anger, it's always rooted in and actually flowing out of love. I want to be clear about that. That there's an element of anger that is actually necessary in this world. If you really love someone, you will be angry about anything that threatens them. So if a loved one gets a diagnosis of cancer, we are angry at the cancer. Why? Because of our love for the person. When we hear about injustice or racism, we're angry. Why? Because it's oppressing people that we love. So love actually requires a kind of anger. In anger at things which destroy people. But the anger Jesus is here talking about has grown and it's morphed into something that's deadly. 
Yes, it might start in a healthy way, seeing something that's a wrong or an injustice. But this kind of anger is rooted not in love, but actually in pride and selfishness, in which we become more concerned about the wrongs done against us. And we actually begin to hate the people, not just the things that have been done. And so God's anger, good anger, you might say, is always flowing and rooted in love. Our anger, the kind that becomes destructive, flows out of pride and self-absorption. And Jesus is saying, this is the kind of anger, the kind that is contemptuous, the kind that disdains, the kind that hates people for who they are. That's the kind of anger that's being warned against. And so the question is, well, how do you know if this is happening in your life? Let me give you some examples. Have you ever experienced a moment where someone comes to you and they offer you a word of correction? They just say, hey, I want to give you some feedback, or they want to challenge you about something. They want to offer maybe a rebuke. And as you listen to them, you might smile and put on a front and say, oh, thank you. But inside, what you're saying is, how dare they speak to me like that? I mean, where do they get the note? Do they know who I am? When that happens, what you're doing is you're not just despising the correction, you're despising the corrector. You're hating the person. Another example, say there's someone in your life that you're angry with, that's hurt you. How do many of us respond? We give them the silent treatment, the cold shoulder. I'll just ignore them. They're not worth my time. You know what that's saying? That's to say, you fool, raka. Just to answer your most basic questions or have even a simple conversation with you isn't worth the effort that it would require of me. You see, Jesus is saying this is happening in our hearts. You see, if you've ever found yourself, like think about, I mean, do this self-examination. If you've ever found yourself joyful because of another person's distress, you are in the realm of what Jesus is talking about, about murderous anger in your heart. If you just kind of root in your heart for someone else to suffer a little bit. That's Jesus saying, you might never lash out with physical violence, but in the eyes of God, the heart that matters, you are murderous. And I think what this passage is calling us to do is some real self-examination. I mean, are you doing it now? Are you taking an inventory of your life and your conversations, your actions, even this past week? Some of you will know the name George Whitfield. He was a 17th century, uh, excuse me, 1700s preacher. And he, as a Christian, often engaged in self-reflection and self-examination. He wrote a set of questions that he would review every night just to see, how did I do that day? And one of the questions that he asked himself every day was this question. Have I thought or spoken unkindly of anyone today? What would it be like if you asked yourself that question every night? Have I thought or spoken of unkindly of anyone today? And notice he says, not have I been unkind. <laughs> it's even more basic. Have I even had a thought today that was nursing a grudge? You see, that's the attitude that's reflected here in Matthew 5. And so this passage, the first thing it does is it's trying to show us the kind of anger which is murderous in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, you need to be on your guard against it. Why? Why is it that this anger is so dangerous? And here's the answer. It's absolutely deadly. It's absolutely deadly. 
What Jesus is describing here in these verses is not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. Jesus isn't using rhetoric to make a point. He's saying that actually what's happening in your heart is so fundamental that you can be guilty of taking a life in the presence of God just by cutting someone down with the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. You see, you and I are always wanting to minimize our bad things. We look at our lives and we say, see, I'm a pretty good person. I don't steal things. I don't kill people. I mean, those other folks who do that, yeah, they're terrible, but I'm a good person. But Jesus is saying real discipleship, really following me is about the heart. And you have to recognize that even nursing grudges and stewing over anger is really potently deadly. It can be absolutely deadly. And here is why. Let me give you an example. I once heard someone describe it this way. Imagine that you have in your hands two acorns. One acorn you take and you plant it deep into good soil and you make sure it gets plenty of light, plenty of water. What's going to happen to that acorn? It's going to grow and it's going to become a giant oak tree. That tiny acorn had within it all the potential power of becoming something big and enormous and powerful. But you take your second acorn and you throw it on the pavement of a parking lot. What's going to happen to it? Nothing. It's going to rot. It's going to die. Nothing's going to happen. Why? Because it wasn't planted deep. But here's the point. The difference was not in the acorns themselves. The difference was on the conditions in which they were planted. Jesus is saying your heart is like the acorn. And if there's hatred and anger and murderous thoughts in your heart, that has the potential of blowing up into something that's destructive and deadly. It's what's going in your heart that matters. Now, for many of us, anger in our hearts doesn't erupt into violence or the taking of a life physically. But Jesus says that's just because of the conditions of your life. But don't think for a second that the presence of that anger deep in you is not as destructive or deadly. It could be. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we have to pay attention to the gravity, the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. And actually reflect on the ways in which this kind of nursing a grudge, stewing over our anger, is actually deadly. One author says it this way, Anne Lamott. She says, nursing a grudge, stewing over anger is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's actually destructive for your own soul. And Jesus says that. Look at the end of verse 22. Jesus says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now we read that and we think, well, that's provocative language and Jesus is using rhetorical flourish, but he's actually being completely literal. Why? Think about it this way. You know, the Bible talks about hell and there's a lot of imagery and there's a lot of symbols, but what is hell ultimately? Well, hell is a place where you're cut off from relationship. You're separated from friendship with God and friendship with other people. In other words, hell is the epitome of selfishness, self-centeredness. That's why C.S. Lewis, the author, one time in a book describing hell says this, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. First, there are those who say to God, thy will be done. But second, those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. 
What Jesus is saying, what Lewis is commenting on is the danger, the fire of hell is self-absorption. And as we nurse grudges, as we hate other people, we are finding ourselves being taken farther and farther away from God and from others. And Jesus says that is why anger and hatred smells of the sulfur of actually hell itself. That's the kind of dangerous waters that we're traversing in when we nurse grudges. Now, at this point, I hope that we're all saying, what on earth can we do about this? This is the most discouraging sermon, the most uncomfortable sermon I've heard in a long time. What can we do? And friends, first of all, remember the goal, it's to challenge. It's to look deep into our hearts and say, man, this is really destructive. Is there anything that can be done to heal this anger? And that's what the rest of the passage is about. You see, what we love is that Jesus doesn't just say, here's the anger that I want you to avoid. But he now goes further and he tells us about how that anger can be healed. And in a word, how can it be healed? Here's the answer, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Verses 23 and 24, which we'll come to in just a moment, highlight the necessity of reconciliation. And then verses 25 and 26 highlight the urgency of reconciliation. In other words, Jesus is saying, what do you need to deal with your anger? Reconciliation. When do you need to be reconciled? Right away. Right now, at this moment. The urgency and the necessity of reconciliation. And so what Jesus is saying, if you're my disciple, if you're my follower in this world, what I'm calling you to is not just not being angry, as destructive as that is, but actually the positive pursuit of righted relationships. That's what reconciliation is. It means a relationship being made right, being restored. And Jesus says, for my disciples, for my followers, that's what I'm calling you to. Whoa, the Bible almost fell. I can make a joke about that, but I'm not gonna. Anyway, um, that's what actually is being called for, the pursuit of righted relationships. Now, let me show you the example that Jesus gives. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Jesus gives a picture. He gives a parable and he says this. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Here's the picture that Jesus is painting. It's quite stunning. I'll put it in modern lingo. Let's say you've come into Central Foundation for worship. And you're here lifting your hands in praise to God. You're offering something to him. And in that moment, you realize that you actually have a broken relationship with another person. There's anger in your heart. You're nursing a grudge. Jesus is saying, in effect, I want you to put your hands down. I want you to walk out of the room and I want you to go and restore the relationship. Because if you're lifting your hands in praise while hating a person who's made in the image of the God that you're pretending to praise, it's of no use. Jesus is saying reconciliation is so essential that if you come even to worship and pretend to lift your hands to God while actually nursing a grudge in your heart, that praise is, you might say, not honoring and not pleasing to God. So go and be reconciled. 
Well, what does reconciliation require? Three things. Initiative. Notice the passage, and friends, I hope you see this. (laughs) The passage doesn't say, if it's your fault, if you're living in a broken relationship because of something you did wrong, then go and make the first step of reconciliation. The passage doesn't say that. It actually says, if you know that someone has something against you. In other words, if they're mad at you for something, it's still your responsibility to take the initiative. In other words, it's not about blame shifting. It's about saying, I, as the follower of Jesus, have a responsibility to put the relationship to rights. So take the initiative. Then second, act in humility. Reconciliation always requires humility, caring more about another person and the relationship than about winning the argument. And so reconciliation requires, as you see there in verses 25 and 26, okay, what do we have to do to make this right? I'm going to get off my soapbox. I'm going to knock down my pride in order to restore this relationship. And then, of course, love. Love for another person. Love to see them not just as the worst thing that they've done, but as who they are as an image bearer of God. That's what reconciliation requires. Humility, initiative, and love. And friends, as I say all this, here's the question. Which of us can live up to these standards? I mean, honestly, Jesus is saying it's not just about external behavior, but it's about the attitude of your heart to not nurse grudges, to not have anger, to not be resentful. And not only do I not want you to do those things, but I want you to go out into the world and be reconciled, make good on your relationships, right your relationships with other people. I look at the standard and I say, who can live up to it? I mean, how can I actually be this kind of reconciler in the world? And the answer is on my own, I can't but I'm not on my own. And the only way to become a person who reconciles their relationships is if you first realize that you have been reconciled because of what God and Jesus has done. You see, this passage, as it describes the activity of reconciliation, is actually describing what God himself and Jesus has already done. Because as we think about the life of Jesus, the person who's actually giving this teaching, the one who's actually saying to his followers about the importance of being reconciled, Jesus in himself would become the one who at great cost would actually pursue ultimate reconciliation. Think about the initiative that Jesus took. Jesus left the ultimate worship service, the throne room of heaven, And he came into this world, not because he had done any wrong, but because he had been wronged against. But in a great act of initiative, he came to his own. He came to his people. And with great humility and with great love, lays down his life. He actually gives himself up in sacrifice. He experiences judgment. He experiences the very fire of hell. The only one who never had a murderous thought experiences the judgment that all our murderous thoughts deserved. The only person who has ever exhibited only righteous anger was treated as one who had all the evil thoughts that you and I have. And on the cross, Jesus bore that judgment. He became the means, the way through which Our sin, our murderous thinking, our hatred, our anger can be forgiven. 
and we can be restored into a right relationship, not only with God, but with other people. And so friends, as we near the end here, there is no formula. The only way that we become people who pursue righted relationships is we see what God and Jesus has done. We see God taking the initiative towards us. We see Jesus acting in great humility towards us. We see his incredible love which kept him dying on that cross. The judgment he bore. And as you see that, as that truth becomes real to you, the penny drops a little bit more. And we become a people that can pursue reconciliation. Not just outward reformation of behavior, but inward renewal of our hearts to become God's agents of reconciliation in the world. And so friends, we come now to our time of response. Here's what we need to do now. The most important part of our service. Bring yourself to Jesus Christ and examine your heart and say, are there ways in which I am guilty? I am guilty of the kind of anger that Jesus says is so destructive. Give it to him today. Experience his reconciling love as he moved towards us with initiative on the cross. Experience that grace and then ask God, lean on the spirit to show you how to become a pursuer of reconciliation in your relationships. That's what's before us now as we come to this time of response. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this hard teaching that Jesus gives We acknowledge that there are things in our hearts that we're not proud of, but we thank you that in Jesus, there is grace upon grace. There is forgiveness. And so we come to him, we look to him today, and we ask for transformation. We wanna be your disciples in this world. People who are active pursuers of rightness and relationships, reconciled living. Lord, may our church be marked by this. May we be a church in the city of London that's known for initiative and humility and love, that you would humble us, help us to care more for others than we do even for our own selves. Lord, we ask all this for your glory and for our ultimate good as we pray this together in Jesus' name, amen.